This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Your time is your greatest currency, make no mistake, and this fact of life does not go unnoticed by the creators on whom you spend your time. So thank you for spending your time listening and learning along with me on this podcast. Please note that the best growth tool for podcasts like this one is word of mouth. If you believe in what's being said and strived for here, please consider pushing this out to all corners of your social media, as well as leaving five-star reviews, multiple even, on whatever podcast service you use. Links for this podcast are in the show notes. Now on this episode, we bounce around some as we continue to set up this Mediterranean stage for the events of the 1070s, 1080s, and into the 1090s. See, events don't just appear in a vacuum, and cataclysmic events are no different. History is nothing more than a series of causes and effects. It may be difficult to puzzle it all out from time to time, but the one thing, the one thing we can rely on in our studies of history is that everything is traceable, if only you're willing to look. Today, episode 100 is entitled, Popes, Kings, sailors, and one really important road. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Around the time that William Ironarm de Hauteville was leading Normans across Apulia and setting up more permanent Norman leadership structures, Constantinople, though struggling through an epidemic of poor leadership since the death of Emperor Basil II, also known as the Bulgar Slayer, due to his uncontested subjugation of the Pechenegs and Bulgars in modern-day Bulgaria and northern Greece in the mid-1020s. Well, the Eastern Roman Empire, by the 1040s, under the leadership of Emperor Constantine IX Monomachus, was making sincere attempts to pull back together its once strong military, political, and economic ties with folks on its fringes. The growing maritime power of Venice, the new kingdom of Dukla, and those Pechenegs. These were all key components to the Byzantine foreign policy around the mid-century. It's also critical to understand that a major and I mean major, road in the same region, well, that was there as well, linking two sides of the Mediterranean, or at least the middle to the far eastern side. Let's take a moment and understand this, because it will play a key role later in this narrative. Beginning in the grand city of the world, Constantinople in the European East, this road was a literal highway called the Via Ignacio, a road one could say is an extension of the fabled Silk Road itself. So leaving Constantinople, you would travel north a couple days before cutting hard west, hitting the foothills of western Thrace. After another day or two of tough travel up and down those hills, you would come across stark peaks cut by two major river valleys, one being the Nestus River near the small but very important ancient city, Neapolis. So after another week, 
if you made it across the northern coasts of modern-day Greece, also tiptoeing by the Bulgars and Pechenegs, who wouldn't mind lifting what you're carrying? Well, if you made it that far, you'd hit even harder mountains, the famous or infamous Olympian Range. But not before stopping off at the bustling marketplaces at Thessaloniki. From there, you follow the Via Ignacio to the cultural centers of modern-day Greece and really ancient Greece at Pella and Edessa. And then, almost immediately, you start up the even tougher northern Pindus mountain range. At this point, you'd wind your way back and forth, up and down, north and south, because mountain roads are never straight. And by the time you've crossed northern Greece, let's say, you've ended up in inland cities like Florina, Heraclea Lancestis, and Lychnidos. And by the time you approach the Adriatic coast, you hit the city of Claudiana. From there, you have a choice. You could head south at Claudiana and hit another important market and cultural center, just a day or two's travel, called Apollonia. But if you choose to keep heading west from Claudiana, you'll hit the coastal port city, a truly, truly ancient city called Dyrrhachium. Today, we call it Duras in the country of Albania. I can't stress this enough. Don't forget this for the rest of the season of the podcast. Dyrrhachium is the point on the Via Ignacio that connects Italy to Constantinople, as you would board a boat there and sail to the heel of the Italian peninsula, making port at Brindisi, where you would pick up the incalculably important and also ancient road called the Via Appia, or in English, the Appian Way which leads straight up the Apennine Mountains to Rome itself. This road is key. That is the Via Ignacio. This road is key. It was the single most traveled path connecting the Western and Eastern Roman empires, like for centuries. And by the 11th century, it was still the main thoroughfare connecting Constantinople to Rome. So, yeah, just a friendly advice. Keep that one in mind, yeah? All right, so let's get back to it. Venice, Dukla, Emperor Constantine IX Monomachus was hurriedly shoring up as much foreign support for the empire's future prospects, which included a solidification of Byzantine control as far west as Italy. Yes, they were going back for it. They were going back for Rome itself. With the coming of the Normans into Italy, it became abundantly clear that Byzantine control there was in serious jeopardy, and if the empire didn't act swiftly, they would lose everything there. Maybe even areas closer to home if they weren't careful. These Normans already had a reputation, but they were building a new reputation, as we know, in the Mediterranean. Let's zoom in first on the kingdom of Dukla and how it fits into the whole scheme of things here. Now, not much at all is known about Dukla before the 11th century, except that Emperor Diocletian, who was born in the area, then called Roman Dalmatia, established it as a formal region within the Roman Empire back in the 300s AD. And the name comes from the Latin name for the group that lived there since time immemorial, the name of Diocletian's people, called Docleetae. So, Ducla, well, kind of makes sense. 
Sometime in the 1030s, we know from the writings of Byzantine chronicler John Skalitzis that a man named Stefan Vojislav led a movement pushing against Byzantine rule in the area, resulting in a sovereign kingdom, hence the Kingdom of Dukla. That's in the 1030s. Now, this would lead to Peter Delian in his own rebellion against Constantinople, taking parts of Dukla for himself in the year 1042. But, well, Dukla would remain a solid entity of its own for decades longer. Coincidentally, it was 1042 that is commonly referred to as the year that Dukla fully pulled itself away, officially, from Byzantine control. But 1042, after shaking off the short-lived incursion by Peter Dillian, that it was 1042 that Dukla reached an agreement with Emperor Constantine IX himself, that Dukla would remain a kingdom in its own right, but it would also agree to Byzantine suzerainty status uh, to an extent. It was kind of a, a complex agreement there, but it seemed like a happy medium. Okay, so now why are we going into this uh, very short-lived kingdom of Dukla? Well, it's important to lay the foundation that clearly states a general rebelliousness around the Mediterranean Sea in the mid to late 11th century. Sure, the Normans spurred a gigantic upheaval to the status quo of Italy and Sicily during those decades. We know this already. However, they weren't the only ones bucking the system. Railing against what we today call the establishment is hardly a new idea. The vast majority of humans throughout history have always been pushed too far by the elites among them, and it's absolutely inevitable that humans will seek to change the system entirely when they feel it's necessary. Obviously, outcomes differ throughout history, but that's an inevitability. If only the, these elites would learn, right? Now, Normans, Slavs, Bulgars, and Turks alike are just a few of the 11th century folks seeking to tweak the system to their own benefits for a change. Whether you agree with them or not, that's neither here nor there, but nature, the nature behind the human, still holds true. People can only deal with serving a master for so long, hence Norman Italy, Norman Sicily, the Kingdom of Dukla. These are just a few manifestations of this idea. Centering on the port city of Dyrrachium, Dukla would soon become ground zero for the decades leading up to the First Crusade, and it's crucial to understand that it too was a region knee-deep in conflict and change. Now, let's next head, head up north the Adriatic coast, across from Italy to Venice. So, pretty much follow the coast northward uh, up the Adriatic coast from Dukla, Dyrrachium. Unlike today, uh, Venice was not a part of Italy back then. A cursory glance of Venetian history leads the vast majority of us to know that Venice is that unbelievably beautiful city on the Adriatic coast of northern Italy that houses some of the most unique thoroughfares in the world, thoroughfares of water. A handsome Italian man pushes his boat along these watery streets around, around the city, singing some, you know, romantic tune in, in that angelic tenor, while a couple on vacation drink wine, hold each other close, and watch the setting sun duck behind centuries-old buildings, casting shadows upon the ca canals below. 
Okay, that's a fair assessment of Venice, I believe. Well, today, it's a fair assessment of today's Venice. But that was not always the Venice of history. In fact, just a thousand years ago, the 11th century, though the city had been around for centuries already, it was still forging its unique path further and further out into the coastal swamps it would one day subdue completely. Parts of Venice were still on that squishy marshland, but we also see that Venice was also partly on makeshift platforms jutting into the sea at the time. The Venice we know today, a thousand years ago, was just beginning to take shape. Make no mistake, though, it was further along than my previous statements, though true, give it credit for. Venice was a bustling hub of commerce during the mid to late 11th century, and it was during those decades that Venice would never be the same afterward. Historian John Julius Norwich calls the period between 1032 and 1095 the Norman menace in Venetian history. Yeah, kind of used to those, aren't we? But it wasn't just the Normans who were influencing how Venetians navigated their way through the century. The Byzantines, the Pope, the New Kingdom of Hungary, the Germans, they all played key roles. And in 1032, things would really take off for the city of Venice. That year, suffice it to say, that one prominent Venetian clan, the Orciolos, had presumed that they were the only true leaders of Venice, but most other Venetians had a few things to say about that, apparently. Before 1032, led by the dynastic Orciola clan, Venice was more oligarchic than it was democratic, which isn't a shocker for the time period. Norwich states unequivocally, quote, Venice was an openly avowed oligarchy, end quote. Now, democratic values were still in their infancy, obviously, but Venice had certainly planted the seeds for them already. However, the Orciolos chose nepotism instead, which wasn't a huge deal at first, but quickly became a problem among, among common Venetians. In 1032, Domenico Osceola, lasting only days as the Doge of Venice, by the way, here's a key term for you this season on the podcast, and really going forward when we talk about Venice, Doge, D-O-G-E. A doge is the term for the leader of Venice. So keep that one in mind. Well, in 1032, this doge Domenico Orciola, after only a few days, died. And Venetians proceeded to elect the opposite of an Orciola. Domenico Flabenico. The Flabenico clan was the longtime Orciolo opposition, which was a major slap in the face to this Orciola status quo. So Domenico Flabenico, which is just a great name. I mean, come on. Domenico Flabenico was a wealthy silk merchant. And mind you, silk still coming from the Silk Road all the way out in, uh, in Eastern Asia. So Domenico Flabenico was a wealthy silk merchant who already had a history of rebelling against the Venetian establishment. And he would serve historically as an important point of impact in Venetian history. Norwich writes, quote, Flabenico's known anti-dynastic views, plus the pattern of subsequent Venetian history, have together been responsible for a widely held theory that the new doge introduced what almost amounted to a revised constitution for the state, 
according to which the practice of appointing co-regents, and thus in effect successors, was forbidden, and a period of tyranny gave place to one of democratic liberty. End quote. So you can see it was Domenico Flabinico's uh, doge ship, I suppose we could call it, that really marked that turning point, that turning a corner for Venetian history into a more democratic liberty base. Now, Doge Domenico Flabinico ruled Venice for 11 years, a pretty unique feat over the last few generations, mind you. What's more is that Flabinico's reign was, quote-unquote, devoid of incident, Norwich writes. He continues, quote, The Republic, that is Venice, the Republic was at peace again. Factions were forgotten, and the citizens were able to concentrate on the two things they did best, making money and enlarging and beautifying their city, end quote. I guess some things never change, right? But Domenico Flabinico died in the year 1043, and after a brief and not too disruptive period of transition in which bishops and prelates ruled the city, a man named, oh, here we go, another Domenico, a man named Domenico Contarini took control more or less democratically elected by the wealthiest of the city. I know, lots of Dominicos in Venetian history, so from now on I'll introduce them, but just call each Venetian doge by their clan name for clarity. So, Contarini, the new doge, made a major contribution to Venetian history by embarking on a major program investing in a formidable Venetian naval force. Anybody who knows Venetian history or even a smidge of medieval history, will recognize, uh uh-oh, this is the formal beginning of the great Venetian naval forces. Contarini's fleet very quickly became the envy of the Mediterranean world, and it happened almost overnight. The papacy was startled, and the Pope immediately condemned this move. Now, this is before the Great Schism of 1054, but it's worth noting that Venice hadn't really chosen a side yet, Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. Remember, it was just Christianity at the time, but when the Pope publicly condemns your actions, which were put into place to strengthen your city's defenses and commercial interests, well, it doesn't really sit well with those people. And this papal condemnation coincided with, as I've already said on this episode, Emperor Constantine IX's push for foreign connections. Now do you see where this is starting to go? Speaking of the Pope, there was plenty happening in Rome as well, so let's head southwest from Venice to the opposite side of the Apennine Mountains. We know bits and pieces of papal history throughout the 11th century already on the podcast, so let's short uh, let's let's sort these puzzle pieces and see uh, what we've learned so far. I won't belabor certain points, but I do want to create the proper context that the papacy was, as we know, constantly in flux. We'll pick it up in 1046 with the year-long papacy, that is, just one year long, mind you, of Pope Clement II, who was really only known for his synod of 1047, which served two purposes. First, Regional superiority was contested between the seas of Aquileia, Ravenna, and Milan, where the Sea of Ravenna came out the clear winner. And second, simony. 
the practice of selling religious positions within the church structure. It was directly attacked and condemned as a practice at the Synod of 1047. Don't underestimate simony as a major mover of opinions and policies during the 11th century. This, of course, sent waves around Northern Europe as kings and other powerful clergy were in the practice already of selling positions for their own gain. Pope Clement II was also pope during the times we've discussed already, that is, the years 1046 to 47. What happened? William Ironarm's reign over Normans in southern Italy, the buildup of the Venetian fleet, the end of the Ducla Civil War, and the reign of Emperor Constantine IX Monomachus back in Constantinople. So only a year long, Clement II holds a pretty powerful year in Mediterranean history. Now up north, and I mean way up north, young Duke William was just beginning to stand on his own two legs in Normandy, just to kind of keep everything in, in context here. And back in Italy, a little girl would be born during Pope Clement II's papacy, who would play one of the most central roles in 11th century history. And it's so funny because we don't even recognize her name. Her name is Matilda. Yes, another Matilda, I know. And she would be born in Tuscany. More on her on another podcast episode for sure. In fact, there'll probably be several episodes about Matilda. She is an incredible figure. I'm blown away by her story. All right, so let's stay on track here. Next up, in 1047, upon the death of Clement II, Pope Benedict IX once again took the papacy. And I say once again because he had already been pope twice and deposed twice. Benedict IX belonged to the extremely powerful Roman family called the Tusculani. And he would be the last Tusculani pope as well. And what's funny about Benedict IX's papacy is that he resumed the papacy after the German King Henry III's choice of Clement II. You can clearly see the Times power struggle here. It's not about the ability to sell church positions, but who gets to sell church positions, right? Henry's choice of Clement II attacked the Tusculani family by outlawing simony outright as a way to undercut the powerful Roman family. But once Clement II died... Benedict IX was put right back in as one last shake in the Tusculani's death throes. That's, well, that's about all Benedict IX is known for. <laughs> yeah, his third and last papacy isn't known for anything except to mark the end of the long line of corrupt Tusculani popes. So yeah, moving on in 1048, well, okay. Humor me here, and let's go back to the death of Pope Clement II in 1047. Wait, wait, tr just trust me on this. So when Clement II, a pope put in place by the German king Henry III, died, Henry couldn't wait to send someone else to Rome as quickly as possible, because he knew who was waiting in the wings. That Tusculani family who legitimized Henry's fears when they immediately placed Benedict IX back in, in the papacy. By the time Henry's next choice reached the city in July of 1048, Benedict IX knew the gig was once and for all up. Accompanied by a stout contingent of German soldiers, Benedict made a run for it, and Damasus II, 
was installed in the Lateran Palace. Now, what's interesting about this is this. Benedict IX was supported by a man named Boniface III, the Margrave of Tuscany. Okay, so let's make some connections now. Who else have we met from Tuscany so far? Well, Margrave Boniface III of Tuscany, supporter of Benedict IX, the anti-pope in the German king's eyes, mind you, was none other than the father of Matilda of Tuscany that I just mentioned. I told you, keep the name of Matilda of Tuscany, also called Matilda of Canossa, in your mind throughout this narrative, yeah? So Matilda's father was clearly at odds with the German king. Please remember that detail. <laughs> As for Pope Damasus II, he assumed the silly hat on July 17, 1048. And less than one month later, on August 9th, he was dead. Now, no one really knows what happened to him to cut his papacy and his life so short. One report, which is deemed dubious by historians, links a poisoning by a follower of then-Cardinal Hildebrand, a man who would not only be linked quite closely to Matilda of Tuscany in future decades, but a man who also became Pope Gregory VII. But like I said, the source is suspect. I want to make that very clear. Most historians put his death down to malaria, which was actually not all too uncommon in medieval Rome during the hottest months. In fact, Rome, as you probably guessed, was really just a hot mess in the mid-11th century. It was a fraction, a fraction of its former greatness and even population. Feuding families, rotten streets, morally corrupt commercial practices, and militant popes all put the ancient city on the seven hills in serious dire straits. We take it for granted that Rome has survived well enough to give us the history lessons we have today. However, I urge you not to take that fact for granted. Rome's survival, especially during the 11th century, it was hardly a foregone conclusion. Rome was really not a great place to be. So it's 1048 and the new pope fell to malaria, presumably. The Catholic Church, stopping to take note of its recent past, realizes the sad fact that they'd welcomed seven different popes in as many years. Seven. The papacy was a bit of a running joke during the 1040s. Stability became a necessity. I mean, it was absolutely necessary. Enter Pope Leo IX, whom we've already met on this podcast and spent some time with. Taking the papacy in 1049, his papacy would take would make serious waves, culminating in the infamous Great Schism of 1049. Now, going forward, after Pope Leo IX, the papacy would begin to take shape in new ways, so stay tuned on that one. All right. I know we're jumping around, but I warned you at the beginning. So at this point, let's take a moment to remind ourselves about why we discuss these three topics, the papacy, Venice, and the kingdom of Dukla. Well, as I said, these three entities are crucial to understanding the Mediterranean region around this time because, arguably, these three smaller power centers are the glue that holds the whole story together. Now, we last left Constantinople many, many episodes ago with the heroics of General George Maniakis and a very young Harold Hardrada 
and their dealings with the first de Hautevilles as they all worked their way across Sicily against the Muslim powers on the island. But we were watching this all play out through the Norman lens. We did visit Constantinople once again in the year 1054, when Pope Leo IX went toe-to-toe with Patriarch Michael Serularius, resulting in, like we just said, the Great Schism. Again, though, we saw Constantinople through the lens of papal history. My point is, what about Constantinople itself? Is there a Byzantine lens we can look through now? Well, we did also take a look at the Bulgar slayer himself, Emperor Emperor Basil II, but admittedly we were drawn to those pesky Normans back in Europe again. I mean, I can't possibly hit everything all at once, so let's let's just take a little time to pick our understanding of Byzantine history up in this season of the podcast. Who better to reintroduce ourselves than podcaster and historian and even public school teacher Lars Brownworth? In his book, Lost to the West, The Forgotten Byzantine Empire That Rescued Western Civilization. Yeah, bold title, I know, but personally, if you read it, then you'd agree it's a pretty spot-on title anyway. So Brownworth writes this, quote, The empire that Basil II left behind him was indeed glorious, stretching from the Danube in the west to the Euphrates in the east, end quote. Pretty, pretty big statement. Basil II died in 1025, so sometime between 1025 and the 1060s, something in Constantinople went terribly, terribly wrong. Constantinople in the 1060s was a very different place, nothing near the quote-unquote glorious empire that Basil left. Brownworth continues describing the Eastern Roman Empire in 1025 beyond the sheer vastness of its land, when he says, quote, No power in Western Europe or the Middle East could approach it. Its gold coin, the nomisma, was the standard currency of trade, and had been for centuries. And its Islamic enemies were cowed and crumbling. The Christian powers that looked up to it as, as their greatest protector, and more than one German emperor traveled to southern Italy, where the imperial borders touched, to seek the recognition of their titles. End quote. Now, Brownworth goes on and on, but you get the idea. Now, in the next episode, we're going to take some time to bring us up to speed on what's been going on in Constantinople since the death of Basil II. Some of it will sound familiar, but I promise most of it probably won't. And all of it will serve up or serve to put us all on the same page when we get to people like the Komnenoses and events like the Battle of Manzikert. In 1071. And as always, I can't wait to tell you about it.